once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. Welcome back to the Senior War Song Podcast. I thank you for being here, for taking the time to listen to me ramble on. I am your humble host, Mikey, your common theologian, your fellow Christian layman, your regular dude, and we are continuing our conversation with worldview. And specifically, we are declaring here the worldview of the true religion of biblical Christianity. And as we broke down before, we must answer questions. Our worldview must tackle the pivotal questions. And we're breaking it down by answering the four subsidiary philosophical questions. And the first one we are going to tackle today is that of ontology, of being. So go ahead and, uh, you know, strap in. It's going to be a good episode. I am pumped for this one. Sorry for the delay. Life is wild, you know. Family, church, community, career, yada, yada. But thank you for being patient. Um, If you want to support me, share this bad boy with all your friends. Let them all know about how awesome it is. Give us a five-star review. Say a few kind words on uh, iTunes or Spotify. And you can find me mainly on Instagram, sing underscore your underscore war song. I post when new uh, episodes drop and um, share it on there. Help me out. Other than that, I hope you enjoy. Be strong in the Lord, my friends. An excerpt from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. A mile, maybe, from the Parth Galen, in a little glade not far from the lake, he found Boromir. He was sitting with his back to a great tree, as if he was resting. But Aragorn saw that he was pierced with many black feathered arrows. His sword was still in his hand, but it was broken near the hilt. His horn cloven in two was at his side. Many orcs lay slain, piled all about him at his feet. Aragorn knelt beside him. Boromir opened his eyes and strove to speak. At last, slow words came. I tried to take the ring from Frodo, he said. I am sorry. I have paid. His glance strayed to his fallen enemies. Twenty at least lay there. They have gone, the halflings. The orcs have taken them. I think they are not dead. Orcs bound them. He paused and his eyes closed warily. After a moment, he spoke again. Farewell, Aragorn. Go to Minas Tirith and save my people. I have failed. No, said Aragorn, taking his hand and kissing his brow. You have conquered. Few have gained such a victory. Be at peace. Minas Tirith shall not fall. Boromir smiled. Which way did they go? Was Frodo there? said Aragorn. But Boromir did not speak again. And further we read from the lament for Boromir. From the gate of kings the north wind rides and past the roaring falls. And clear and cold about the tower its loud horn calls. What news from the north, O mighty wind, do you bring to me today? What news of Boromir the bold, for he is long away. Beneath Amon-Hen I heard his cry, their many foes he fought. His cloven shield, his broken sword, they to the water brought. His head so proud, his face so fair, his limbs they laid to rest. And Roros, golden Roros Falls, bore him upon its breast. O Boromir, the tower of guard shall ever northward gaze. To Roros, golden Roros falls, until the end of days. Legacy. It's a powerful idea when we, when we spend the time to contemplate it. And when we take the time to think of our actions and purposes in the moment, we cannot but think how they all connect to form 
a legacy from which we will be remembered. How did we live? What did we live for? Was it connected to something greater? The story of Boromir from Tolkien's work, though fictional, bears powerful truth. Boromir was a man of honor, a man of noble birth charged with the preservation of his people. And during his journey, he toiled with the temptations of power, no matter the cost of justifying the means of power by the end he sought. He was a character who suffered failure. Yet in his last moments, we see a repentant man who seeks to turn from his sins and find redemption through sacrificing his life for those he betrayed. And at his end, we see the powerful moment where he smiles as he knows that his actions are not in vain. For the true heir of the throne, Aragorn, assures him that he has conquered and his people shall not fail. He smiles because his death is part of something larger. It has meaning for it is purposed for something outside of himself. His actions were not in vain. His legacy shall last as one of redemption, courage, and honor. Of his love for his people, this was his purposed end. This story of legacy <clears throat> or purpose, it must cause us to ponder the great philosophical question of being. What does it mean to be? Why are we here? Who are we? This, this thing, this group of beings we call humanity. Are we any different than the ox or the wolf or the worm? Is our purpose any clearer? Is there any purpose to our existence? Are we autonomous? Or is everything, including our very thoughts, determined by some outside force? And we are but puppets in a sick and twisted game. Or is it some seemingly illogical mixture of the two? Are we created, spawned, randomly formed by the great God of chance? My friend, these are the questions we must ask when we speak of our ontology, our definition of being. This question, like the other subsidiary questions that come together to form worldview, must not be looked at in a vacuum. You can't just completely section them all off. They, they connect. They, they form a web together to form your worldview. All of these questions must be looked at analogically, meaning in comparison to the other questions in order to form a systematic view of our existence. But today, we're going to focus on this question specifically of ontology. And we will progress through the subsidiary questions in our future episodes to, at some point, paint a complete picture, right? We're going to go through the four questions and then summarize and completely form our systematic view. But no, for today, although we're focusing on ontology, there must be some sense of crossover. For the, the nature of knowing has great effect on being, being on destiny, destiny on what we consider valuable or worthy. But I'm going to do my best to focus us today on the ontological question, the question of being. In order for us to truly understand our story, our purpose, the nature of our being, we must first understand that our existence is not our story. For the Lord declares through his prophet Isaiah, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. 
My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. All that was and is and is to come was formed from nothing by a creator. A creator who shall not share his glory with another. For it is only right that he who formed all things is deserving of all glory. This is the way of the sovereign God. And we can but only understand his perspective as he has revealed it. He is the author of life, the story writer and teller of his story to his glory. And we are a part of that powerful story. He has formed us in his image and given us a powerful purpose in that story. As Isaiah's prophecy is one of covenant and promise and love. This story is filled with tragedy, with consequences that have real meaning. And we see the horrific fruit of these tragedies. Alas, we see that God, the sovereign author who is omnipresent and yet self-contained, entered into his own story in the form of human flesh and suffered these consequences. He suffered the apex of these consequences. He suffered real, genuine agony in his humanity. So before we can fully understand our being, we must understand our Creator. As the Word declares, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, I've been reading lately Cornelius Van Til, in particular his work, Common Grace. If you don't know Van Til, he was truly a sage of his time. And God and his grace has used what he revealed to Van Til to truly minister the truth to future generations. This dude was a wizard. And as for me, your fellow common theologian, I'm but scratching the surface of his teachings. But regardless, he speaks of God as the ontological trinity. He begins everything with the ontological trinity. And it is here we must begin because God's word reveals it. Everything began with God. The God who has no beginning. All creation, everything that is, began with him. God is. You see, he, he just simply is. He is outside of time and space. He is the great I am. He is the triune deity. He is self-contained, fully satisfied in and of himself. He is full of glory. He is, always has been. He is everywhere and always has been. He is full of glory. We cannot add to his glory. He is changeless, perfect, and eternal. Our understanding of God must be the presupposition that stands as the foundation of everything else that is said and understood. To further expound upon this concept, I'm going to drop you guys a longer quote. Bear with me. But it is an essential one. And it's artic articulated far better uh, than I ever could, frankly. It's from K. Scott Oliphant. He wrote the foreword to Van Til's Common Grace. I don't know what uh, edition I have here. Second edition. But Oliphant speaks of three themes that are keys to Van Til's thinking, but they all stem from this foundation. Okay? Quote, he, meaning Van Til, begins with the ontological trinity. To begin with the ontological trinity means, at least, that the reality of God as God must be the assumption and controlling reality behind everything else that is said. Specifically, as we will note below, the three themes themselves are what they are only in light of the fact that the triune God 
is independent in and of himself. That is, he is absolutely independent. There is no sense in which God needs anything in order to be who he is in and of himself. This truth begins to inform the mystery that is part and parcel of the three themes below. Apart from this truth, there is little to no mystery in the Christian faith. Not only so, but apart from this truth, God is in some essential way in need of something outside of himself in order to be who he is as God. That cannot be the case. The Bible begins with the ontological trinity in its first four words. Since only God was in the beginning, he cannot need anything in order to be who he is. Not only so, but because the God who alone is independent is triune, the oneness of God that we confess as Christians must be affirmed in its triune diversity as well. That is, God is three in one, not simply one. His three in oneness is the foundation for the interplay and creation of the one, the universal categories, and the many, the particular things. The triunity of God is indeed a mystery. And that mystery has its analog in all of creation as his creatures recognize both unity and diversity in the world God has made. Creation, then, is mysteriously analogous to the triune God's character. In this way, Van Til takes seriously and rigorously applies Herman Bovink's dictum that the lifeblood of theology is mystery. End quote. Drink some coffee here. <clears throat> so this is like mind-blowing, right? When you really sit down and ponder these deep things. It's a limiting, a limiting concept in that we cannot exhaustively understand it. We can't come to a complete and terminal understanding of the eternal nature and character of God. But this is the essence of our being. It all stems from this great triune God who is. The Lord declares... For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's from Isaiah. We, we all pursue God. We are called to pursue God. We're not called to be ignorant in our understanding by any means. We pursue truth. We pursue meaning and purpose and value and understanding. But we do so in humble submission, knowing that ultimately the foundations that uphold our understanding are a mystery. We know them to be true without wavering, for God declares it. But we know these truths cannot be fully comprehended by the finite minds of men. And so the mystery of God's character is the foundation that gives everything, including us, purpose. These mysteries, these truths, must be in order for everything else to make sense. And this brings us to what Van Til would call apparent contradictions. J.I. Packer would use his own definition of antinomy to explain this concept. Now, this is the notion that we have truths that are declared that appear to contradict according to our means of logic, but they cannot because they are declared true by revelation. And God does not contradict himself. These apparent contradictions are the foundational truths that are a mystery because our understanding cannot fully harmonize them. But they are the truths that lay the groundwork for anything to make sense. Like we have already stated, our Creator's ways are higher than ours. Eternal where we are not, inexhaustible and unsearchable, and we as creatures are charged to trust 
that which has been revealed to us to be true. Without this, nothing has meaning. Our being has no meaning. Let us reflect on some of these foundational apparent contradictions to give you to give you examples, okay? First, Christ. Jesus the Nazarene, the one who walked the earth, ministered on the earth for three and a half years, was born of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, who died on the cross and three days rose from the grave. He was fully God and fully man. He was not half God, half man, fully God and fully man. Can we fully harmonize that? Can we fully grasp and understand that? No. But the word is clear that it is true. From K. Scott Oliphant, quote, We can affirm then that Christ is, as God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, etc. But we can fearlessly affirm that as he condescends, he was located in time and space, that he grew tired and hungry, that he grew in wisdom and in favor with God, etc. To deny one of those natures for the sake of the other is to do an injustice to Christ and to the truth of Scripture. To deny the means of the salvation of men and to detract from the inexhaustible glory of God. So Christ, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, self-sufficient. But we affirm that as the second person condescended, he became fully man, though he was fully God. The eternal, infinite God was physically in human flesh located in time and space. And he suffered the different aspects of humanity, right? He grew tired and hungry. He grew in wisdom from childhood to adulthood. We see that that he weeps, that he curses, that he shows righteous indignation and compassion and forgiveness, changes his mind on things and dealing with people. We can't detract from the one nature of Christ for the other so that our our finite minds can somehow logically piece this together to how we want it to piece together. No, we must affirm that both of these natures of Christ are true. They apparently contradict because we can't fully harmonize that concept, but they are true for God reveals it so. God did not create out of necessity, but he freely determined creation according to his decree. The self-contained, self-sufficient, glorious triune deity who simply is the I am, freely determined to form us. He was not dependent on some other force to form us. He did it freely. In that creation, he voluntarily condescended down to us to relate to us, teach and interact with us, and ultimately to save us. The author became an intricate part of the story. He physically leapt onto the pages of history. He never ceased to be God, and yet he was a member of humanity. His creature of which he calls to covenant relationship, he he became that creature. He represented that creature before the Father in heaven. And I'm going to digress a moment. But this is why the God of Christianity is the God of truth. According to the order of being, there must be an entity that is absolutely sovereign. And the triune deity in all of his essence is sovereign in every action. He is the author, and yet he is on the pages of the story. He he creates, he in his Grace sovereignly saves. He redeems and restores. Where false religion calls man to reach to the heavens, the God of truth, 
who is sovereign, who is absolute, reaches down and delivers. This is the way. Praise be to God. Moving on. Another apparent contradiction. God has a will of decree. As the Westminster Confession of 1646 states, quote, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, end quote. And yet he is also the God of command, as his revealed will in scripture commands us to live according to righteousness. And so we see here two truths. God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. He decrees whatsoever comes to pass. And yet, humanity is responsible. God chooses, decides, and wills. And yet his creature has volition and liberty to seek, act, and obey. God is, as we've stated, self-contained the triune deity, self-fulfilled. He's dependent on no one, meaning he's absolutely independent. He is full of glory, meaning we cannot add to his glory. And yet he created us, called to obedience man who is to glorify God forever. What? (laughs) He will not be moved in his holiness. He is unchanging within immutable will, and yet he interacts with his creature. He He delivers his creature. He shows compassion and grace and forgiveness. He executes his wrath, his holy justice. He loves and he weeps and he hates. These apparent contradictions cannot be exhaustively understood by man and his logic, for they are the foundational mysteries that give things like logic any sense of meaning to begin with. We must think concretely and harmonize these truths according to the measure of grace given to us by God. For it is God's word that clearly reveals they are true. And so we, the elect, the followers, the disciples of the Lord, we argue the faith. We defend it in the public square. But we dare not attempt to use man's understanding to try and understand the deep things of God. The man that declares himself autonomous and ultimate. At some point in our understanding, we must humbly place our faith in God in his ways that are higher than ours. As Van Til states in Common Grace, it all comes to this. If we are to truly perceive the world correctly, if we are to truly know who we are, If we are to truly know our being and what that means, quote, either presuppose God and live or presuppose yourself as ultimate and die. That is the alternative with which the Christian must challenge his fellow man, end quote. Well, here, my friends, we are of the living and we will perceive our existence accordingly. Let us understand our purpose together as it is revealed by our gracious God. So we've now at least established, scratched the surface, if you will, the nature of our creator. And we understand he creates according to his purpose and his glory. He writes his story. And maybe to some this sounds arrogant or selfish vain, or somehow our creator is a narcissist for forming all things for his glory. But he is none of these things. And why? How do I argue that? Well, it's simple. It's because he is God. He is God. And where other creatures, even of the angelic realm, where they would be pretentious in seeking such adoration, he is not for it is his due. From the prophet Jeremiah, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. 
There is none like him, for he alone is God. It is only right that all things be formed to his glory and credit. And let us remember the character of our Lord revealed in Christ, the second person. This self-sufficient, self-contained creator, who is fully independent, humbled himself in the form of human flesh and chose to suffer his penalty for his creature's decision to not give him glory. Nonetheless, we see that in our Lord's character and design, he formed man for a specific purpose. He gave him being for this reason, this glorious purpose. From the Westminster Shorter Catechism, quote, What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. End quote. The God who depends on nothing and no one, who is full of glory, brought man into existence for the purpose of covenant relationship and glory. This indeed is one of those mysteries, one of those apparent contradictions. But it is the truth that establishes all truth concerning our meaning and purpose and being. God commands humanity to love him. By loving God, humanity glorifies God, and in love, humanity shall enjoy covenant with God forever. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We understand that to fear the Lord is in essence to give him his rightful place. We humbly bow before him, in reverence and awe, as he resides in glory as sovereign Lord and King. We apply that holy fear through obedience. For ultimately we reveal our love by committing ourselves to the commands of God. Jesus is asked by the scribes of the greatest commandment, and he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Yes, my friends, our being is for the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. This duty is fulfilled by loving our God and expressing that love to our neighbors. The commandments of God are the application of that love, the tangible expression of that love. Christ makes it clear when he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the framework of our ontology, our essence of being, within the story that is being written by our author. According to this framework, God has revealed that he has formed humanity with a presupposed nature. God made man in his image. He breathed into him life with a rational soul that is distinct from all other created beings. Man can then communicate with God and respond to his communicated commands according to that rational soul within According to our image-bearing nature, we all have a presupposed knowledge of God, our Creator. Every member of humanity naturally knows God and His will of command according to our image-bearing state. We are without excuse. Now, I understand the fall of man. And we will consider man's current state of depravity, depravity with more depth shortly. What we're establishing here is man's being, who he is, his presupposed nature, his created presupposed nature and purpose. And God reveals to us clearly that every member of humanity is without excuse. Every aspect of the created order of nature reveals to humanity God. From the letter to the Romans, Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You see, the fall of man did not change his metaphysical state. Humanity did did not become something that is not human at the fall. Adam did not forfeit his nature when he fell. Metaphysically, we know the truth. But ethically, we have fallen. We thus, as Paul says, we, we... We willingly suppress the truth in our unrighteousness despite knowing it as image bearers, right? Metaphysically, meaning the beginning of things, the the presupposed nature of things, and we're talking about our being, metaphysically, we were formed by God as image bearers. We naturally know God. We have the truth, Right? We see the truth. Everything, the created order of everything, right? God's word, his special revelation, but then the general revelation of everything around us reveals God and his nature. So we are without excuse. But because we have fallen ethically, we willingly suppress the truth in our unrighteousness at any chance we can get. Van Til makes this point, quote, To be sure, I do deny that this natural knowledge of God and of morality is the result of common grace. I think it is the presupposition of common grace. It is the presupposition also of saving grace. And Oliphant in in the footnote clarifies this point when he says, This is an important theological point. The fact that all men know the true God is entailed in all men being the image of God. It is, therefore, the presupposition of common and saving grace, not the product of it. In our understanding of our being, we must know that our image-bearing nature precedes the fall of man and sin, and thus grace. God's grace unto us is because we deserve wrath. We did not deserve wrath until the fall. And you, you may be asking why this is an important point as to our being. Well, bear with me, my friends. I will further explain, but just keep this pivotal point in mind in regard to our created nature. So our friend, Dr. Glenn Martin, God bless him, he's in glory, asserts that one of the presuppositions of biblical Christianity is that man is purposed to be prophet, priest, and king. Quote, The biblical view of man is a high view. Every man is a prophet, every man is a priest, and every man under sovereign God is a king. As prophet, man can possess the truth, know what has happened and why, what is happening and why, and what will happen and why, on the basis of God's disclosure of himself to man in verbal propositional form in the Bible. As priest, man has direct access to God on the basis of the finished work of God in Christ. As king, man is called upon God to take dominion over all that God has created, making godly exploration, knowledge, and usage of creation. End quote. So we're not going to get deep on all these points of man being prophet, priest, and king. But if you want further analysis on this presupposition, go back uh, to my previously published episode, Show Yourself a Man. It talks a lot about man's purpose and call. Specifically man. But this this presupposed identity of man is critical in our understanding of being and purpose. This isn't to take away from the specific role and functions of certain callings, like that of church leadership in the form of pastors and elders, 
or of the civil magistrate that governs with the sword to punish evil, or of the prophets of old and our forefathers who were great reformers and theologians. But the point, okay, the point to make is, is every man by his very nature stands in this position before God. For God is the transcendent sovereign and every man is responsible to him as prophet, priest, and king. You are not to abdicate this responsibility. You are not to outsource this responsibility to any other entity. Meaning the, the institution of the church? No. The institution of the state? No. These are your presupposed purposes according to your nature. It's, it's according to your created purpose, your being, your ontology. And so when we look at this, right, our being, what are we not? First, we must understand that we are not autonomous. There's certain aspects, right, within the created order of our lives where we, we have some sense of autonomy, meaning self-governance, but we autonomy is not our presupposed nature. Right? You didn't self-will yourself into existence. You didn't self-govern who would be your parents. You had no determination of when you would enter into the timeline of history. You had you, so you are not autonomous in regards to your presupposed nature. You were created by a God who ultimately determined when you would enter into time and space as a being. We are not part and parcel of God, right? God is not some free-flowing energy source or some pantheon of beings. And that energy just flows through all of us and we, and we have this sense of divine intuition. No, as we said... God is self-contained and absolutely independent, and he formed everything from nothing. And he made us image bearers. He breathed into us rational souls, right? But we are not part and parcel of God. We are not part of the divine, okay? That's like transcendental talk. That's, That's not part of our presupposed nature. We are created beings. We have rational souls that were breathed into us by a sovereign creator, but a sovereign creator who is self-contained and separate. So we do not prop ourselves up as part of the divine. And we were also not randomly strewn together by chance, right? We didn't spawn from the pools without any sense of meaning or purpose, just randomly brought together. We were created for a reason, a determined purpose. And it is here we must see our purpose within its proper context, according to the current state of things, in regard to the fallen state of creation in man because of his sin. Sorry, getting a sip of coffee. Our covenant representative, Adam, he disobeyed the command and thus all of his race, that is the human race, has marred the image bearing nature of humanity and we are all dead in our sins. We are totally depraved, meaning we are entirely dependent upon God for our redemption. Man cannot reach out Dead men are unable to raise their hand for the divine to take hold. We are dead in our ethical dilemma. And only God has the power to raise the dead. And it's here that we see God's grace covering the historical timeline as he providentially governs and guides according to his plan. Now, man is not utterly depraved meaning we are not the worst we could possibly be. I mean, even for the reprobate and the unregenerate, we see God's common grace working within the metaphysical state of man to prevent his utter depravity. 
right? We go back to Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. He says in chapter two, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So though only the elect are sealed and indwelled by the Spirit of God, God will move, according to his common grace, to restrain the full unrighteousness of sinful man by bearing witness to the image-bearing conscience that is within the metaphysical nature of man. This is important to understand as we seek to fulfill our being that the sovereign God is governing all things to the fulfillment of his plan and story, even among the reprobate and the lost, the tyrannical and the satanic. God will thwart them and ultimately use them for his glorious purpose. But we must understand that we have our being in God, but we have disobeyed the command and have marred it. We've marred our image our being. We've corrupted it. And now we seek in our sinful nature to suppress the truth that we know according to our metaphysics. Man seeks after the created rather than the creator. He has made himself ultimate rather than submitting to the ultimate. From Jeremiah. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. And he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false. And there is no breath in them. They are worthless. A work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. But it is here. It is here in the story we understand our being within the plan of God. It is here we understand that the sovereign God is writing a story where he is restoring the ontological purpose of the people whom he has chosen. In Christ our Lord, the second person of the triune deity, entered time and space and he represented humanity before the Father, bore the penalty for sin that holy justice demands, and thus he redeemed us, meaning he bought us back. From what? From the dominion of darkness, the sinful nature. He is restoring us, right? He's buying us back, bringing us back from darkness to what? Restoring us, in essence. To what state? He was restoring a people to their natural state, their original state, sanctifying them from the corruption of the flesh and by grace revealing fully the truth and freeing his people from their suppression of the truth, right? By the corruption of the flesh, we are willing ourselves, using our liberty and volition to suppress the truth that we know and we are dead because of it. But through the finished work of Christ, his spirit moves, regenerates our hearts, calls us to repentance and faith, and frees us from this corruption. And thus he frees us from suppressing the truth. He reveals it fully to us. 
He is redeeming us from the ethical dilemma we are in, not metaphysical. The reprobate and elect are both image bearers of God. This is why we hold to the sanctity of human life. But the ethical dilemma has marred that image, and that marred image cannot enjoy God forever. It must be cleansed and restored. Restoring man to his design as prophet, priest, and king among creation for the purpose of God's glory. So who are we? Why are we here? What is our purpose? What gives our legacy any sense of meaning? What does it mean to be? We were created by a sovereign God whose determined will undergirds all things. And we were created to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Some would say that God's determinate will destroys the meaning of our choices, of our lives as our logic dictates. We have no choice if God indeed providentially governs all things absolutely. But the reality is that God's sovereign decree, his determinate will and plan is what gives our volition and liberty any sense of purpose. It is what makes our lives matter, for they are all glorious strokes of his pen as he marks us onto the pages of history. He has given you liberty within his sovereign plan. And this is the foundational mystery that is truly glorious. If this is not so, if somehow in the timeless counsel of the unseen there was an indeterminate moment of chance, then chance is God. Chance is indeed sovereign. And if that be the case, then our decisions truly have no real meaning. For they are not part of a determined purpose. They are nothing. Some may say, well, I get to define my own purpose. But that's the current state of our culture. And it is nihilistic chaos and destruction. Everyone is trying to find meaning while defining themselves as ultimate. And they are lost because this is not the ontological order of our existence. Right? If you can define your own sense of meaning, then it truly has no meaning. Right? It's life is but chance and randomness. There is no overall purpose. And some may argue that sounds like freeing, but it's empty and dark. It gives it gives no uh no objective sense of purpose for anyone, right? The narcissist has just as much meaning in living for himself, of destroying others for himself, as the selfless, humble one who seeks to serve others. If we all get to just define our own sense of meaning, if chance is what truly governs all things. But no, the fact that God is absolutely sovereign, that he has a plan and a purpose for all things, that he determines, he decrees whatsoever comes to pass, that is what undergirds all of history and gives anything any sense of meaning. And and, and the mystery is that we have liberty within that plan. And we, we can't fully fathom that. And we try to use our own subjective sense of understanding and logic to try to morph that truth and harmonize it in a way that is untrue so that we can feel better about our, our understanding of things. But it's at this moment where we humble ourselves and presuppose God as ultimate rather than presupposing ourselves as ultimate. God is sovereign. He has a plan. It will not be thwarted. He is the author and he's writing the story for himself to his glory. And he's formed us for his glory. And he decides whatsoever comes to pass. But he's given us liberty. He's he's given us commands to follow, to act upon. And we do so within that plan. And because there is that plan, our liberty has meaning. Oh man, it's mind-blowing, but it's it's freeing when you come to that moment of revelation. 
right? Man is but dust. He is but a finite drop in the endless space of eternity. But he rose from the dust for a glorious purpose because underneath the pages of history is the plan of God that universally holds everything together to give it value. The psalmist declares, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. We, we are but grass rising and falling from season to season. But the everlasting God keeps us in covenant and gives us our sense of meaning, our beautiful purpose. Jesus declares, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. God holds all things in his hands. He determines the rising and falling of every creature He wills nature onward according to his plan and purpose, and he has numbered the hairs on man's head who is but dust. He gives each day meaning. When we rise, what we eat, how we function, what we do with our time, how we discipline our minds, our hearts, our bodies, he gives it all meaning. He gives our being, in the moment, purpose. Oh, the glorious mystery of it all. And it all is analogous to our triune deity's character. The universal plan of God is of equal value to the particular moments of history. For the moment is the working out of the plan. The plan undergirds the moment. So God is three in one. His oneness, his universal character of equal value to the particular persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In our being, we glorify God as we see him in all things, in the moment, working out his sovereign plan. And we know that we utilize our volition, our liberty to will, to make choices and do what is right and good and true. And we know these choices have meaning in the moment, for God is sovereign. We know that no matter the tragedy or adversity or horrific occurrence of darkness that faces us, God is sovereign and gives the moment meaning. He is good. He will be glorified, for he will share it with no other, and he will make all things right. And this is who we are. We are creatures of this God. And in Christ, we can be restored so that we can truly be. So that we can truly live. And so that we can truly have hope. And just as Boromir smiled at his death, knowing even in that tragic moment there was purpose and significance. So we too know that our fight is not in vain. We know why we fight, because we know who we are. And we know that the immediate outcome is part of a determined plan 
that is glorious. Repent and believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom is at hand.